of against the grain message that when we are weak, actually, it's one of the strongest positions we can be in because it's our moment to invite the Lord into it with us. And so we've been going through uh, unpacking this theme. We've unpacked themes of uh, walking with integrity, of living generous lives. Uh, we've been looking at all the chapters we've been going through, and, and this is us coming towards the end now. And actually, the passage we're in today is, is a sort of pivotal passage for the letter. It's the point where Paul hears from the Lord around this area of, in his weakness, there is strength. Um, and so we're going to read today uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll be reading verse 1 to 10. Um, there's some Bibles on the end of the row, so if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, and you would like one, if you pop your hand up, one will magically make its way along the row to you. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we would absolutely love you to take that Bible. Uh, that is your Bible from now on. You can write your name in the front of it and keep it for life. Uh, we would love it if you had a Bible in your home that you can read every single day. And so if you don't have one, please feel free to take any of the Bibles that you see here. Uh, not off another person, just the ones on the road. <laughs> so we're going to read together 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 10. I'm just going to pray before we do that. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that on the pages of this book is truth, is guidance, is encouragement, is wisdom. Lord, we thank you that this isn't a book that just sits on the shelf, Lord. It's a book that's to be read and consumed daily, and that, and that it's actually a book that's alive when we read these words, that your Holy Spirit um, brings them to life in a way that can transform our lives. And so we just we pray this morning that that would be the case. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are open to be changed and molded and shaped in the way that you're calling us to do that, Lord. You're so welcome to do whatever you want this morning, God. And we only want to do what you want to do. Amen. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 10. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And it's important to say here that most people believe that Paul's talking about himself here when he says, I know a man. He's actually talking about himself. Um, whether it was in body or out of body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So in order to find strength in our weakness and in order to magnify God's goodness um, in the process, there seems to be quite an obvious first step to take from Paul here. He, he sort of explains that the first step to allowing God to bring our weaknesses to strength and for him 
to be glorified in amongst that journey is that we have to recognize and we have to acknowledge that we have weaknesses. We have to acknowledge that we do have weaknesses, that there are things that we struggle with. For some of us, there'll be things that we struggle with that are really prevalent and on the surface and the whole world might be able to see them. For others of us, we might have stuff that's tucked away and hidden away in the very depths of our heart and nobody would ever know, but we know that it's a thing that comes up regularly for us. We all struggle with stuff. I'm so sorry if you arrived at church this morning and you thought, brilliant, I'll get to church and I'll be around a group of perfect people uh, and maybe I'll become perfect as part of that as well. I'm so sorry to burst the bubble, but nobody in this room is perfect. Not one person. We all struggle. We all have things that are problems, that are hardships, that are difficult for us. I'm really sorry if you arrived here this morning and thought everyone's had a spectacular week where nobody got angry or jealous or mildly frustrated or hurt or shouted out loud or shouted at another driver or watched pornography or did anything like that. I'm so sorry if that's where you thought you were coming this morning, but the reality is we all struggle. We all have weaknesses. Paul says, I will boast in a man like that, but I will not boast in myself except about my weaknesses. And he says, he heard from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The key to beginning a journey of discovering our strength in the Lord and the key to discovering uh, what that journey looks like to glorify the Lord is acknowledging that we are weak. Um, we went to look at a house a few weeks ago. There was a house went on the market, a seven-bedroom or an eight-bedroom house um, that was on for £125,000. And I was like, why is that? That is, that is not right. Maybe somebody's made a mistake that we can capitalize on here. And so we went to go and view this house uh, and the house was an absolute wreck from top to bottom. It looked like, uh, like somebody had let a herd of chimpanzees loose in it and then just left them to live there for three or four years and then came back and said, oh, I'll try and sell this house now. That's what we'll do. Um, but one of the things that was wrong with it is that it had woodworm uh, and, and, and they wouldn't specify how much woodworm or exactly where the woodworm was. They just said, we found traces of woodworm. Uh, and for, for that house, like if, if they found traces of woodworm, um, they would never, if you'd bought that house, it would be first thing on your priority to discover where the woodworm was and to deal with it. You know, you would never move into that house and say, right, we know that there's woodworm here, but we can, we'll leave that for a few years. We'll just hope that it doesn't get any better. And then in a few years' time, we'll deal with it. Because what would happen is in two years' time, you'd fall through the floorboards in one of your upstairs rooms through to the bottom floor because the woodworm would have chewed through the joists and chewed through the flooring. And it would have got into all the important parts of the house and been chewing through it while you'd left it buried under there. I think what Paul is saying here is acknowledge the woodworm in your life and acknowledge it so that it doesn't become the kind of thing that digs away at the foundation and one day you just fall through it. Paul's calling it out in the Corinthian church because he doesn't want them to be a church that looks really great on the surface, but that has really shaky and dodgy foundations. He's saying, guys, acknowledge the weaknesses. Bring them to the Lord. You don't have to pretend. We can all just agree that none of us are perfect and then we'll all bring it to the Lord together. Let's not all pretend when we're looking around that, oh, that person over there looks like they're doing such a great job. And if I say the thing that I'm struggling with, then maybe everyone will just shame me and mock me because everyone else seems to do a good job. The reality is we are all weak. For some of us, we're better at pretending we're not weak than others. 
but we all struggle. We're none of us perfect. Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, stop spending all your energy and time trying to look like a swan, gracefully floating along the surface while underneath the legs are going like that, just trying to keep everything on track and keep everything under wraps and keep everything on the straight and narrow. Say, be honest. Acknowledge your weakness. I wonder how many of us can empathize with that feeling today. We look at the world around us and we think, oh my goodness, everyone else seems to have it so together. And I just, I'm not, I'm never going to tell anyone about the fact that I get really angry about this thing because nobody else seems to get angry about it. Or I'm not going to tell anyone else that I watch this stuff because nobody else seems to be watching this stuff. Or I'm not going to tell anyone else that I'm really jealous of everyone around me because they all seem to have nicer things than me and I can't afford to buy them. It's like, the world we live in perpetuates this need to look perfect and look great and have everything together. I was feeling convicted of this myself this week. I was going back through my Instagram posts and most of my Instagram posts are just me and the family having fun together. And I thought I should probably be putting up like a a polar opposite of those moments where me and the family are having fun together when it's half past four in the morning and my son's just vomited on his own bed and rubbed his face in it and it's in his hair and I have to take him for a shower and I'm so tired and I'm so angry about the fact that I'm up at three o'clock in the morning. But we don't put those posts up, do we? They never ever make it to Instagram or Facebook. It's always just like, hey, me and the fam having fun today. Hey, it's me and the crew, we're out having fun. The reality is we all struggle. Paul's saying the first step finding strength in your weakness is acknowledging that there's a weakness there in the first place. We need a perspective switch. Rather than seeing our weakness as something that needs to be hidden and buried away and tucked away for nobody to ever find out about it, we have to perspective switch to seeing it as an opportunity. Our weakness is an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. Our weakness and our mistakes and our moments where we're not quite up to scratch, that's brilliant. That's expected. That's the moment Jesus gets to come in and fill the gap between us and perfection so that his glory is displayed to the world so that instead of seeing us looking like we've got it together, they see a savior who can actually get it together. The first step is acknowledging our weakness. And so if we were to do a wee MOT today, if we were all to pull into the the spiritual car shop, the, the car shop, the garage. I don't know if I've ever called it a car shop in its life. If we were to pull into our spiritual garage and say, just give me an MOT, what kind of things would the spiritual mechanic be saying to us this morning? Do we know, do we recognize those things in our life that actually be saying, oh, that, that bit there is a wee bit loose and you should probably get that tightened up or this bit there is really close to failing completely. You probably need to do a good bit of work on that. Are we aware of what those things are? And if we're not, why, why don't we ask God that question this morning? God, where are our weak spots? Where are the places that you can come and do something mighty in it? The next point that Paul makes around the area of weakness is fascinating. Paul goes on to talk about how he's received this thorn in his flesh. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And nobody knows exactly what this thorn in the flesh is that Paul's talking about. Some people think 
It was a literal thorn in his flesh that he couldn't get out. Uh, other people think it was some sort of physical ailment uh, or, or a long-term illness that he couldn't shift. Other people think it could be like really unhelpful thoughts that he was thinking that just kept going over and over in his head. Other people think it might have just been the fact that he was being persecuted constantly wherever he went, that that was the thorn in his flesh. There's a whole bunch of theories around it. But regardless of that, what we can surmise from him is what he's dealing with is inconvenient and painful and hampering him in some different ways. He wants it gone. He prays to the Lord, God, this is really rubbish. Would you please take this away from me? And, and when we look at that situation, we've watched Paul up until this point, you know, pray for people and miraculous things happen. We've watched the Lord lead him in miraculous ways. So we, we would automatically assume like, oh, when Paul prays for himself, he'll surely just whatever he's struggling with will be gone in an instant and, and God will step in and he'll do something. That's the natural thing that would happen, but he doesn't do that. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. I wonder if those words came as a surprise to Paul, that it wasn't, here you go, Paul, let me take that thorn away, but instead was, my grace is enough for you. It wasn't the answer he was expecting, but it was an answer that allowed him to build a faith and a trust in the Lord that was robust enough to withstand even the most difficult and dangerous trials that he would go on to face. The first job I ever had uh, when I graduated from university, I worked for an advertising company um, and I worked in sort of online and print sales for them. And so it was like a whole new world to me when I first started. But I kind of grew to enjoy it. Like, I was good at talking. If you're good at talking, you're usually good at sales. If you can just get somebody talking, that was the key to it. If you were on the phone for more than three minutes, the chances were you were going to sell something to the person you were on the end with. Um, and so I worked there. Um, and uh, the way that my job worked is that I got paid uh, like a, a little salary. And then uh, the rest of it, I made up in bonus. So if I hit all the targets that they give me, I was given a bonus. And if I went over the targets, I was given a bigger bonus. Uh, and we got paid monthly bonuses. And so the end of every month, the last day of the month, was always this mad scramble. Everyone was like, I just need to find a sale from somewhere. We'd be going through like all the weird and wonderful Gumtree adverts for like uh, garden maintenance and being like, you could use a, you could use a website. You could use, a, you could use something to make your company bigger. We're going through it anyway. Uh, and so it was always like that at the end of the month. And I remember this one month in particular, I'd already made bonus. Uh, and I was just trying to make more money on top of what I'd made already. And I stumbled across this sale at like three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And the guy was like, I want to take a full page advert in the thing. And I was like, this is amazing. These things are worth an absolute fortune. I'm going to make a cracking bonus. And so I was counting down towards the deadline. And I'm taking all this guy's details really quickly. And I'm like, tell me this, tell me that. And he's like, can you make artwork for it? And I'm like, yeah, so I need to take all these measurements. I'm going through it all really, really quickly. I hang up the phone and I start filling in the paperwork. It's like 10 to 4 on a Friday afternoon. I'm like battering through the paperwork, trying to get it through really quickly. I do it. I get it sent off before the 4 o'clock deadline. I send it away. And just after it's gone, I realize that I've put all the wrong measurements in for a different sized advert. And I'm like, oh, come back, come back, come back. And I can't because it's gone. There's no way of me retrieving it from the print team at that point. So I go to my manager and I'm like, you're going to have to help me out here. Uh, I've done this thing. I was rushing it through. I've made a mistake with it. And she was like, I'm not going to help you. And I was like, what do you mean you're not going to help me? She's like, I'm leaving the office now. It's four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. That is not my problem. And, she, and I was like, it is your problem. You, you're my manager. You have to fix these things for me. And she was like, not four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I don't. Uh, and she left me. She left me to it. She didn't fix the advert. It got rejected 
it didn't go into my monthly bonus. I had to phone back the guy and explain that his advert hadn't gone through because I'd made a rush and a mess of it. It was a horrible situation. I couldn't believe it. And I was stewing on it for days afterwards. I came back into the office on the Monday and I was still raging. I was like cold shouldering my manager and like doing the very minimum that she asked me to do. I was raging about it. Do you know what never happened again though? I never ever rushed an advert again. I always double checked my work before it went through and I always got somebody else to have a quick look over it before I sent it away because I was so absolutely certain I never wanted to end up in that situation again. When we make mistakes and when we are under attack or when bad things happen to us and it's nothing to do with us at all, our automatic uh, assumption is, God, you should just take this away from me. But actually, and amongst all that, we don't know the whole story. We don't see what God sees 10, 20, 30 years down the line. We don't know what us enduring the moment that we're in right now is preparing us for in the future. You see, Paul thought that God should remove the thorn from his flesh. It seemed like the natural thing to do. It feels like the kind of thing a loving father would do. And yet he's greeted with these words, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you where you're at just now, Paul. Paul had been through a lot already as a a new Christian in a dangerous world for Christians. He'd been beaten and mocked uh, and whipped and run out of towns and had stones flung at him uh, and had accusations made against him. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been in shipwrecks. He'd had his freedom taken away from him. And yet this present trial that he's facing, this thorn in his flesh, whatever it seems like, feels bigger than that stuff before He's seen God deliver him time and time again, and he's seen the outworkings of God in his life in all those different situations. But this time, he's like, take, take it away, God. I can't, I can't do this. I need it gone. And we can empathize with that feeling that Paul has. All of us in this room will have been through trials. We'll have been through hard times. We'll have had to live with the consequences of our bad decisions and our mistakes. We may have experienced God bringing us out of those moments miraculously in the past. Yet, if you're anything like me, the next time hard stuff falls at your door, immediately, when God doesn't give me an immediate answer and take the thing away immediately, I'm automatically like, oh, God's probably not there, or God probably doesn't care, or why on earth is God not doing something about this? We automatically assume that God's not aware and prepared for what's going on. I love the theologian Charles Spurgeon. He, he says this, it's often easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. You see, God's grace is completely sufficient enough for us every single day. When new challenges arise, when new weaknesses come to the surface, or pain is inflicted on us, God's promise is that new grace arrives each and every day in a measure that is more than enough to see us through whatever it is that we're facing. For us, to walk that out well, though, we have to trust God. We have to trust that he is 100% for us. We have to trust that his eternal perspective and his understanding of what life is all about and what's about to come is far more informed than our perspective will ever be. If we don't trust God, then the moment hard stuff comes our way, the moment we fall, the moment we're attacked and there's not an immediate answer or a miraculous delivery, our assumption is that God's not there or he doesn't care. But the truth of that however, is the exact opposite. He loves us so much that sometimes he allows us to deal with the consequences of our bad choices or to endure an attack for a little while 
or to live with a pain knowing that the eternal consequences of that moment happening allow us to rely on him and allow us to rely on him forever and not to walk away from him or just forget about it the next time we're not miraculously saved or delivered from what we're facing. You know, maybe for some of us in the room, we're in a really difficult situation just now and we're just waiting and waiting and waiting for God to miraculously fix that situation. And actually what he's doing is climbing into that situation, sitting down beside you, putting an arm around you and saying, it's okay, my grace is sufficient for you. If we can grasp that concept of God's grace being sufficient for us in every situation we face, then it stands us in amazing stead to deal with anything the world has to fling at us, anything that the enemy would try and drop in our way. It transforms our whole view of weakness, difficulty and hardship from something that we powerlessly have to just try and scrabble through to something that we can strongly and resolutely stand in because we know that God is there with us and that his grace is sufficient for us. When we cling to Christ, his grace that passes all understanding provides, an eter- provides a passage to an eternal relationship with our loving Father where sin, shame, pain, suffering cannot and will not exist. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We're given this incredibly special, incredibly uh, generous gift of grace that is more than sufficient for anything that we'll find ourselves in. I love that. And so we have to acknowledge our weakness. We have, to, um, we have to acknowledge that there's stuff there that we can bring to the Lord and that he can do something wonderful with. We have to acknowledge that. Then secondly, we have to, we have to allow God into those moments. We have to allow him in and to allow his grace to be sufficient for us. And then the third thing that Paul goes on to speak about in our weakness is that God's glory is magnified in our weakness. When we are weak and we trust the Lord more and we hand it all over to him, it provides this immense opportunity, not only for us to be strengthened, but for the world to have front row seats to our transformational God in action. He says, some of the last words that he speaks are, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. And those eight words have the power to completely revolutionize the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about others, our perception on our impact on the world totally shifts. If those eight words are true, in our weakness, God's power is made perfect. His glory is put on display, not because we are perfect and we are perfect images of God, but because we're weak and actually in the places where we're weak, God's goodness and glory gets to be shone out into the world. Some of us might be aware of a scientist called Alexander Fleming. Put your hand up if you know who Alexander Fleming is. Oh, good, a good number of us. For, for any of us who don't know who Alexander Fleming is, uh, Alexander Fleming invented uh, penicillin. He discovered penicillin, which is obviously one of the key components to antibiotics and how we treat infections in our modern day and age. It was an incredible thing. But I use the word invented very, very loosely. Um, and I use the word, it is more like a discovery rather than an invention. Um, you see, um, what he invented revolutionized the world, but the way he found out about what penicillin was is hilarious. Uh, Alexander Fleming was known as not a great scientist in the day. Uh, His peers would have said that he was a lazy lab technician uh, and not very proficient. 
uh, they would have said that he wasn't that great at his job. Uh, and basically, the way he discovered penicillin is hilarious. He, he'd accidentally contaminated one of his samples just before he was about to go on holiday. He'd put the wrong thing in with something else, and he crossed two things that he shouldn't have crossed. Uh, and rather than dealing with it, he was like, I'll deal with that when I get back from holiday. And he just left it on his desk, basically, and went off for a couple of weeks on holiday. And when he came back, there was this blue mold growing inside his Petri dish that he was doing his experiment in. And when he put it under the microscope, he realized that whatever it was in the blue mold was attacking the infectious cells. It was having a positive impact. It was a total, total fluke. He discovered it by complete accident. Uh, he discovered it through uh, basically being an inept scientist is what happened there. And I love that story. It must be rubbish for him, though, you know, when people are like, you've invented penicillin. Oh, amazing. How did that happen? Talk to us about your journey. And he was like, um... Basically, I was too lazy to do the dishes before I went on holiday, and uh, it was just sort of there when I got back. I love that. Out of his weakness, something absolutely incredible occurred. And in the same way for us, when we embrace our weakness and when we allow the Lord uh, to, to really partner with us on what those weaknesses are, then the world around us gets a front row seat to seeing God in action. How cool is that? when we can't possibly do what it is God's asking us to do, and we can't possibly do the things in front of us in our own strength, when we can't possibly climb out of the pit alone, when we can't possibly uh, pull our way through the hardships that we're experiencing, it's an incredible moment because when we invite God into it, He alone can help us walk through that. And not only do we personally be blessed in that moment, but actually the world around us gets to see us being transformed and us being moved forward in our weaknesses and us being uh, dealing with those things and, and the Lord dealing with those things in a way that's transforming us. How cool is that? In our weakness, we are made strong. In our weakness, the Lord's glory is displayed to the world. In our weakness, it becomes an invitation for the world to come and meet the king who would care enough to come and transform one individual. I love that. What hope is there in that truth for us today that even in our weakest worst, toughest, hardest moments when we get a chance uh, to lay down intentionally our weakness before the king and invite the father into it with us, suddenly we become a stage to the world, a stage where God can come and stand on and display himself to the world around us. I love that. Paul finishes the letter by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He recognizes that his true spiritual strength doesn't come from anything that he can muster himself it doesn't come from him having a great week and uh, being a holy person and managing to keep everything together on the surface. His true spiritual strength doesn't come from that. His true spiritual strength comes instead from a willingness to allow Jesus to make up the difference between his weakness and God's perfection. That's what Jesus gave his life for. God knew that we would never, ever reach the perfect standard required of us to be in an eternal relationship with him. And so instead of leaving us there, he, he gave his one and only son who laid down his life for us. And in the moment that Jesus laid down his life and was crucified, and then three days again rose later, sin and death and shame were all defeated and conquered once and for all. It meant we had a free way back to God, that we didn't have to be perfect to be with him, but that actually Jesus' sacrifice restores our perfection even in our weakest places. I love that. Our only job, and amongst it then, is to make sure that God gets the glory. 
when we choose to partner with the king, it can be so easy to want to claim that glory for ourselves. You know, when we start to get our lives together a little bit or we see God moving, it can be so easy for us to be like, oh, you know, because I'm just a bit of a holy Christian me and, you know, I did some good praying last week and, you know, I've been reading my Bible quite consistently for a few weeks now and it's probably that, that holiness within me that's, that's demonstrates some, it's not. It's a loving father who's willing to give us everything for you. And so we have to ensure that God gets the glory. The reality is that we just get the privilege of showing off Jesus to the world, even in our worst and weakest moments. How liberating is that? How freeing is that? We don't have to maintain a facade. We just have to bring the reality of who we are to the king. Brother Yun, um, who is, his story is amazing. If you ever get a chance to read The Heavenly Man, um, it's about him uh, basically seeing Christianity explode in China. Um, and he says this, it's not great men who change the world, but weak men in the hands of a great God. I love the thought that if we all embraced our weakness, trust that the Lord's grace is sufficient for us, no matter where we are or what we've done or where we end up, if we commit to handing our weak lives over to Jesus so that he can do mighty things with us, that combination of things may just be enough to strike fear into the heart of the enemy for this city. What if the only thing holding us back from seeing revival come in this land, what if the only thing from holding us back from seeing uh, Aberdeen University campus completely set on fire for the Lord, what if the only thing holding us back from seeing this city completely transformed uh, and, and knowing a God who loves them dearly and people's lives literally being molded and transformed by the king. What if the only thing that's holding us back from that is that we're all working so hard to maintain an external appearance, an image of confidence that God has no room to move in the reality of our weakness? My encouragement for us today is let's acknowledge our weakness together. Let's bring it before God. Let's trust that his grace is sufficient for us. And then let's allow him to magnify his glory in the transformation of our weakness to strength. Think about how our family, our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues would react if they had front row seats to our own personal transformation. And the only explanation and reason we could give for it is that our savior cared enough for us to dive in and do something about it. What would that change? What would that mean for the world around us? Why don't we stand? I'd love us to pray together.